Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the State of Venezuela podcast. I'm your host, Rafael, and in this episode, we're going to pivot to one of the most promising solutions to the economic collapse of the country. We've talked on this podcast about hyperinflation as an endemic issue in Venezuela, hitting an annual rate of 1.3 million percent in November 2018, and will likely reach 15,000 percent by the end of this year. So what can Venezuelans do when their local currency, the Bolivar, is worth less than the paper it's printed on? What can they rely on when so many depend on remittances from family members overseas, but state controls imposed by the Maduro dictatorship prevent remittance services like MoneyGram and Western Union from properly working? One promising answer is cryptocurrency. Many of you might have heard of Bitcoin, or have even bought some as a tradable asset. But in Venezuela, cryptocurrency has turned out to be a saving grace for those who have learned how to use it. And fintech companies are starting to take notice. To talk to us more about the Venezuelan use case for cryptocurrency, I'm joined in this episode by Alejandro Machado, a Venezuelan entrepreneur and software designer. Alejandro is the co-founder of the Open Money Initiative, a research organization that looks into how people use money in closed economies, specifically how Venezuelans at home and abroad use dollars, Bitcoin, and Bolivars. He's also the head of research at Value, a Colombian-based startup and remittance service aimed at fighting inflation in Venezuela with synthetic US dollars backed by Bitcoin. This is an exciting space with a lot of potential for the future of Venezuela. So I hope you enjoy today's episode of the State of Venezuela, featuring Alejandro Machado. Joining me today is a Venezuelan entrepreneur and software designer. He's the co-founder of Open Money Initiative, a research organization which looks into how people use money in closed economies. Their initial focus is on Venezuela, where years of economic downturn and strict currency controls have created a humanitarian crisis which has political repercussions well beyond the country's borders. Something, of course, listeners, you know that we've talked about time and time again in this podcast. But he's here to talk to us today about the use case for cryptocurrency in Venezuela, something I'm actually very enthusiastic about as well. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce Alejandro Machado. Welcome to the State of Venezuela podcast. Thank you, Rafael. It's great to be here. So I first want to get started here, Alejandro, with your uh, with your personal background. I understand that you're in Colombia now, right? I am, yes, uh, because uh, besides uh, my involvement in the Open Money Initiative and the founding of the Open Money Initiative a couple of years ago, my full-time focus right now uh, is in a startup called Value. Uh, it's an American company, but we are based in Colombia because we are focusing on the Colombian market at the moment. But our idea is to allow Venezuelans all over the world to be able to send money to each other. And uh, we are starting in Colombia because this is where uh, the most impact can happen. There's 1.8 million Venezuelans in Colombia at the moment, and uh, many of them are not financially included. Wow. So I am in Colombia at the moment. Um, my background, I, I've, I've lived in um, a bunch of cities. I, I've been doing the digital nomad uh, lifestyle for, for a bit. 
And uh, well, before that, I studied computer science in Universidad Simón Bolívar, mm-hmm. and I did a master's in human-computer interaction in Carnegie Mellon. And after that, I just started uh, going, you know, back and forth between Venezuela and other places. Uh, I've, I've left Venezuela and come back many times, um, and I do want to go back eventually. And I think the way we do that is by allowing people to break free from controls and to to be to be free again. Um, in you know many many ways, uh, and I'm I'm like fighting here from my corner, like what what I know, which is technology and and how technology technology relates to humans. I'm really glad that you brought that up, Alejandro, because when it comes to the subject of remittances, which I think is great, something that you guys are working on in this value startup, I couldn't help but notice just how significant of a contribution it is to Venezuelans that are living this issue of hyperinflation right now. Unfortunately, it seems like people are now having to find uh, other ways to survive. So what can you tell our listeners about the problem of hyperinflation in Venezuela? Just how bad is it really? I think people are very fixated on hyperinflation as a phenomenon because it's just so weird. But I think I, I always like to start this conversation with discussing high inflation because there isn't really hyperinflation is a very arbitrary definition. It's like it, it kicks in when like economists define it as when the price of goods increase over 50 percent month over month for over six months. That's like the, the standard textbook definition of hyperinflation. And then everyone starts talking about hyperinflation when that happens. And I think, sure, it's like dramatic and, and uh, useful to talk about. But I think uh, in the case of Venezuela, we, we have to start with the story of high inflation. Even growing up in the 90s in Venezuela, there was high inflation. For as far back as I, as I can remember, there's always been high inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, families that are middle class uh, have always wanted to save their money in dollars because the Bolivar has not been a great store of value. And um, that's just been historically true even before I was born. And um, this is something that I think there, it, it's a trust issue in, in the system. It, it, it's something that is like a hidden bug in society that if you feed it or, or if, if it like becomes big, uh, then it can become you know, like a, a very significant problem. And so living with high inflation, if, 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 if you don't hate hyperinflation yet, what you have is, is a system that it, it doesn't encourage you to invest in your own community. Like national currency is like putting up a border, like a virtual border in, 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 your, in, your, in your economy, right? Like the, the, the system that you're interacting with, like the people that you have to pay every day and, and, and like the salary you get paid, everything is denominated in this currency. But if, mm-hmm. if this loses value, even just like 30% a year, which sounds outrageous in the US, but it's pretty standard for like Venezuela in the 90s, that is something that starts being a problem. And, um, and then when you hit hyperinflation, then it's something that is like absolutely out of hand. You basically, as soon as you receive money, like talking about remittances, for example, when Venezuelans receive money from anyone who lives abroad, they have to rush to the stores and spend it because they don't know how much it's going to be worth the next eight. If you, if you measure it in, in dollar terms, which is not technically inflation, it's, it's devaluation. But if you do that, um, and it, it, it is correlated with like the price of goods, then you can you can see drops of you know twenty percent in a single day in in some cases. Mm-hmm. So you are essentially living in a, in a system that forces you to to pay with your time, or, or it forces you to to do things that are not um, entirely reasonable. You know, like and and and, and this is uh, yeah, it's it's just really really tough to to live in on, under a system like that. 
Exactly. It seems like money, from what I understand, has several functions. It's supposed to be a some sort of a medium of exchange, and it's supposed to be some sort of unit of account, and it's supposed to be a storage of value. Right. The Venezuelan Bolivar has failed over the past, I don't know how many years, in meeting any of those three requirements. So maybe you can touch on this a little bit more, but I've seen and heard stories of Venezuelans now having to revert to barter systems to trade goods for other goods. There's something uh, known in Venezuela, I think it's called el treque. Treque, yeah. Treque is the Spanish word for barter. Right. Um, you know, I've seen, I've, I've heard some cases of that. Um, I think that is, um, that is a problem or that, that was a situation that was much more prevalent before dollarization. Uh, and we can also touch on that. Venezuela has... Uh, like things in Venezuela have changed significantly in the last year. And my go-to explanation for this uh, was the big blackout that occurred last year in 2019, March 2019. Mm. Before the big blackout, people were resorting to barter and were resorting to uh, occasionally. It's, it's not something that I, I think happened like quite a lot, but the Bolivar was such a bad medium of exchange and, and store value and even unit of account that people, yeah, like it, sometimes it was more efficient that like, if you said, okay, I'll, I'll give you this and you, you'll give me that. That happened mostly because people were really afraid of using dollars because they, there's a stigma around using dollars like that, that Chavismo has built up for decades. You know, it's, it's uh, the currency of the empire, like evil empire, or, you know, it's, it's, it's like they even have this word divisa, which sounds kind of sinister. You know, like it's like you, you don't even call the thing by its name, like the dollar. Like the dollar is like a bad word. And like you say divisa and also sounds dirty. I don't know. It's just like stigmatized so much. And people didn't want to show dollars in public. They didn't want to talk about dollars that they had and so on. And so the big blackout happened. And all of a sudden, everyone realized that people had dollars because there, there was no way to pay in cash because like the dollars in cash didn't exist uh, almost. Like the, the, the government couldn't print them fast enough. And, and mm -hmm. most transactions were taking place in the electronic system. And so with the, with the network down and with power down, the only way that you could pay in Venezuela for almost four days was using something that was not the Bolivar. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure barter occurred. But what really ended up happening was people had dollars. Like they didn't have it in huge amounts, but they had some and they started using them and they lost the fear of using them. And we like, the, and we saw 2019 like develop. And I actually went to Venezuela in 2019 in November, and oh, wow. I just saw like it was, it was incredible to see people on the streets with dollars. Um, there were signs that openly, like street merchants, openly selling uh, shoes in dollars, like five dollars for shoes, and and, and that, that to me was just like wow, you know, like this is something that is really hard to control. Like even with all of the government effort to, to shut down the, the dollar, like to, to kind of strip the demand for dollars that, that was inherent in Venezuelan society. And again, this, this dates back to like, even before the nineties, like people have always looked up to the dollar as the gold standard, like as, as the stable currency, as, as the asset that you want to hold if you want financial prosperity. Mm -hmm. And so, even with all of that um, intimidation campaign just that lasted for decades, all it took was uh, a monetary system that didn't work, that, that wasn't working because of hyperinflation and, and scarcity of bills, and just like a, de a detonator, which was the blackout. And then all of a sudden, people were really comfortable using dollars. And if you think about it, 
um, it's very hard to stop this kind of situation from, ha- from happening. It's, it's very hard to stop everyone in the country from using paper bills, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like, pe- like green pieces of paper that they, they trade with each other. Like, how are you going to police that? It's just untenable. So, yeah, people were, were afraid. They saw that they used dollars and didn't like nothing happened. So the, just like usage spread. And we saw that like, n- right now the thing, things are a bit weird with the pandemic. But in 2019, you could feel a little bit more of financial prosperity because of people holding dollars and using dollars. And like this, this brought a little like a, a small measure of relief to the economy and at least to the way people perform financial operations in, in Venezuela. So, yeah. A lot to unpack there, but but yeah, it's it's it's, it's so weird. It, it is, it is. I mean, uh, I think the the listeners are kind of used to it being like that now. Uh, this is really every single. That's why every single subject at this point needs an episode in of itself because there's just so much to unpack when it comes to Venezuela. And I want to point out for the listeners because we haven't really talked about this yet. Um, the blackouts that Alejandro is referring to, they happened back in March of 2019. And this was a dark month for Venezuela, both in terms of absence of light and in economic activity, because Venezuela endured at least five nationwide power outages across the entire country. And it left at times 90% of the country without electricity. And think about it, without power and online banking access available, payment systems would have to gradually shift to physical money, mostly dollars. But that's something that people were already at the time, I don't know what the case is now, like you said, with the pandemic, but at the time, most people were already unable to obtain because of existing currency exchange restrictions, right? Yes. But you know, those restrictions had been in place for decades and little did we know, or like, you know, it turned out that people did have dollars uh, in their houses, in their mattresses, in like, you know, their, their, with their families, because Otherwise, the the dollar trade wouldn't have occurred. Like you, you would have seen barter. You would have seen other things like oh, okay. take the place of the the volor. Mm-hmm. But what you saw was people started using dollars immediately. It was a very sudden change, and then it ramped up. Like the the usage of dollars in Venezuela ramped up to the extent that firms like Equanalitica started doing studies on like how many transactions in Venezuela were actually taking place in dollars because it became a thing. Like people talked about it, but no one could measure it. And I think Econalitica, um, I think, determined that maybe 62% or something like that of, of transactions in Venezuela in February, 64%, uh, took place in dollars, wow. um, which is unbelievable. You know, like a year ago, this was not the case. Like maybe 2%, maybe, yeah, something like that, you know, with, with people like that had very high trust among each other because like you, you were really careful not to step on the red line that the government had said and like the, the, even though there was no not a law that actually forbid you from using dollars in commerce there were laws against currency exchange that that people were still afraid that that people were like that that the officers would crack down on and um i think if, if you look at the timeline it's also weird because I think that the, the government and like Maduro tried to liberalize before the blackout happened and he didn't succeed because people didn't trust that he would um, make good on his word, mm-hmm. right? Like that, there was, um, I forget exactly what, what the document was, but there, there was some decree of sorts that, that essentially said that foreign exchange is no longer uh, a crime. And this came out in 2018, but no one listened. Like people still didn't use the dollar until the blackout. And then people realize, oh, okay, it's 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 good to go now. Like I, the the coast is clear, I can I can actually 
use this now. So it, it's interesting that people already had access, some kind of access to this instrument. And if you think about it, and like we talk about forms of money and we're going to talk about cryptocurrency later, um, the dollar in cash, in physical form, is the most inclusive instrument that you can imagine. Anyone can hold it and you can you can pass it on to anyone. You just need hands to hold it. I mean, it's just, it's it's perfect for financial inclusion. It's, it's just not great for other things. Like if you want to have um, significant savings and, and you care about your safety in a country like Venezuela, where it's very dangerous, mm-hmm. of course, the dollar in cash is not the perfect instrument, but it is very resilient. Like it, it, it withstands like power outages and um, phenomenons like these. And it also is very, very inclusive. So designing for something that Venezuelans could eventually hold that mimics some of these properties of inclusion, but also allows people to have savings and, and to not have to have physical dollar bills uh, to transact. That, I mean, you, you could, you could uh, look at the properties of the, of the dollar in cash and you could try to mimic them in, in some other ways, but bringing the, the, the good aspects of the digital world. Right. And actually, this would uh, serve as a great segue for my next question that has to do with the Open Money Initiative, because you started roughly around the time that uh, things really kicked off, we can say, back in January 2019, right? So what led what? Well, I know it was a bit a bit before that, I think, based on what I've read in um, in your articles or what have you. But what what was it that originally led to the founding of the Open Money Initiative? It was the Petro. <laughs> oh, oh, it was, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it was. It was actually in 2018. Um, I was working. I was consulting for a few startups, and uh, as I said, I was I was traveling. I, I lived in Berlin for a bit. Then I, I was spending time in Colombia and Panama, Argentina, um, and I was interested in in the cryptocurrency space in general uh, because it was um, it was very promising. Like I, I followed people like Balaji Srinivasan and and uh, some others on Twitter and Naval. Um, and uh, I was just getting into that uh, world or, or like worldview of, okay, this this is the next big thing, big shift that is happening. I've always been interested in the intersection of technology and politics or technology and society. Mm-hmm. And for me, there's no greater shift than the advent of technology that can empower people in, in a way that they can be independent or more autonomous from from the state. Right. And and um, I think that cryptocurrency, or, or I thought at the time, and I, I still think to some extent today, that cryptocurrency and, and blockchain technologies in general are, are a very interesting way to, and a, and a re- reiteration of the problem of trust. Like, how do you trust something? How can you place your trust in a system rather than uh, a promise of a state that may fail? And so being Venezuelan and having, you know, a failed state, essentially, I, I was just like very, very curious about all, all of this. And uh, when I was um, kind of outsider, like an outsider to the space, because I, I was doing my, my main job at a startup that had nothing to do with anything crypto related, um, I just came across, uh, well, the, just the, the, the Petro happened. Like, the, well, it didn't happen because it, ne- it never did happen. Mm-hmm. But uh, Maduro uh, showed his intent of creating a parallel system for money in Venezuela that he himself and his government could control rather than the banks. He wanted to replace the the way that people transact with the regular financial system composed of Venezuelan banks, most, most of which are private. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wanted to replace that with his own network that he could control and he could like easily seize assets of dissidents, for example. Like I'm, I'm sure that um, 
that part of the of the project or like that 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 vision it maybe was not articulated obviously for like for obvious reasons uh but i i think when, when i think about the petro i think it could have been like so sinister and, I, and I, I see some some features of it in for example china's uh cbdc project mm-hmm. um and i i just worry <laughs> but um yeah that, that's that's what led me i i think it, it just like it was a realization that this technology was already being born and, and it was interesting to study and governments were, were studying it too and, and bad governments were studying and, and, and trying to use it. So uh, I said to myself, well, I better get in the, into this game of like understanding how it really works and just like doing everything I can to just like t- to put it to good use. Um, and if it's not this technology, then then it, it, it should be something else. But um, I, I just, I was just a very... Like I was shocked by by the le- the level of like potential evil that and and, and, and potential like damage that this could cause, and um, I I was uh, interested like I, I just dove into it. So I, I worked a little bit on some Ethereum projects. Um, I have a friend Demi Brenner who like actually brought me into this space, uh, got me interested in in the first place, and um, I worked with him for a little bit in Argentina, and then I worked a little with uh, Zcash because I, I I started talking about the Petro. And I started talking about, I started researching how Bitcoin uh, was used in Venezuela, but in a very shallow way, uh, you know, talking to people on the internet, doing some interviews, but but nothing, you know, very thorough. Um, but I, I started getting into that space and I met Jill Carlson, my, my co-founder at the Open Money Initiative. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, she, at the time she was consulting for the Zcash company, uh, the electric coin company is called now. So this is the company that uh, spearheads the cryptocurrency called Zcash. Um, which is a privacy-preserving cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I met Jill, and we were both interested in events. So Jill had uh, spent some time in Argentina, and she had seen some of the ugly faces of in, like high inflation and capital controls. And uh, she was um, also in that space of like, how, how do we help people with this technology? And, and how do we actually make it work for real humans? Uh, and not just like, people who are very, very, very into the technology and or people who are very, very, very into trading, which are the main two groups that are usually interested in cryptocurrency. How do we make this work for, for everyone? Mm-hmm. And so um, we we were sponsored by uh, the Zcash company at the time to conduct a small study on, on Venezuela to like actually dig into it a little bit more. And we, we lasted for like about three months. We delivered a report. And um, we wanted to to continue. And, and Zuko, uh, the founder and CEO of uh, the Zcash company, actually like said, you know, this is a good idea. Like, wh- why don't you spin off a good or- uh, a, a known organization so that you can really research how, how this thing works and like how it's actually being used. And like maybe you can go to Venezuela. Maybe you can you can get really close to the problem. And that around that time, we met our third co-founder, Jamal Montesar from IDEO, the design. Uh, design thinking, design-led, like research processes company. And um, we we found that our skill sets like complemented each other uh, quite a lot. And uh, and we decided to conduct, you know, a proper, let's say design-led study. So so it's, it's not how you would think about traditional research, but it's about a search. It's about what can the insights that we learn from how people use money in Venezuela that, that we're going to find out firsthand by traveling close to, to Venezuela or very close to Venezuela, um, how can those insights inform us and uh, inspire us to create products that could actually work for people? Because it turns out 
people in, in the cryptocurrency space love to talk about protocols for money, you know, like the way you would talk about HTTP as a protocol for exchanging information on, on the internet. Mm -hmm. uh, but people don't really care about HTTP. They care about browsing the web. They care about downloading a video game. They care about watching a YouTube video. So these are these things that I just mentioned are products, are things that have affordances and have um, a packaged form that people can consume and, and can profit from, or like they, they, they can, it's, it's more tangible. And it's not tangible in the physical form, but it, it is tangible in a way that, okay, people can understand it, they can use it. And um, yeah, the, the idea was to create these inspirations for, for products and to leave it open so that any startup uh, that could, wanted to focus on Venezuela, that wanted to take on this very massive problem, we realized we're not gonna solve this problem on our own, so let's, let's do this research. And then let's let's let it out. Let's go um, speak at crypto conferences and let's uh, produce reports and let's uh, you know like the things that you read on on our Medium uh, blog. I think mm -hmm. um, we we just wanted to to let that out and and we are at the moment considering other regions that we want to empower people to study and and we want to but we want to preserve like the same level of let's say thoroughness or or design led process uh, integrity in a way. So it, it's been challenging because we all have full-time jobs now mm -hmm. of our own. Um, and uh, it, it's just, it's been challenging, but we, we are working right now on a couple of regions that we're interested in to, to conduct studies and, and potentially we could come back with a, with a big study soon, I hope. Um, in, in right now, the Open Money Initiative is, is kind of a network for sound research about closed economies and how technology can help people living in those economies. And we believe that access to an open and privacy preserving financial system is a basic human right. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's not enough search of products being conducted in, in many of these regions. And we, we want this, these searches to happen so that we as communities can overcome problems like capital controls, like hyperinflation, and like just monetary oppression in general. I first of all, I absolutely love the initiative and its goal. I think it's it's very admirable and it's ta it tackles an extremely important issue that goes beyond can I afford this, can I afford that. It goes to being able to recapture. I wouldn't even say retain because I feel like it's been lost this sense of autonomy, of dignity, not just absolutely not just on a financial level, but on a political level. It's about equalizing opportunity as well. Uh huh. I couldn't agree more. Um, now, on a more practical note, Alejandro, what can you tell the listeners about the Venezuelan use case right now for the current adoption of cryptocurrency in Venezuela? What, what examples exist right now of the potential of cryptocurrency, um, anything tangible that's actually you know, going on that we can actually present to the outside world to tell them, hey, this really mm -hmm. does work in the way that we intend it to work? Right. So I think the most tangible example of how cryptocurrency is used in Venezuela and why it is useful is, you know how people have bank accounts in one country, like you're American, so you have uh, you have accounts in, in the US, you have bank accounts in this, it's not only natural, you know? Um, and a Venezuelan person might only have access to a Venezuelan bank account, he's never traveled abroad, um, you know, he, he doesn't have access to other financial systems. If you think about it, it's kind of arbitrary and um, you know, like nowadays, bank accounts are just digital, right? Like you, you don't actually have to walk into 
your local bank branch and do things anymore. This is something that is like a blast from the past, if, if you will. So what Bitcoin allows people to do or, or what cryptocurrencies in general, just Bitcoin ter- just turns out to be the most uh, widely used because it's been around for the longest time, because it has products around it that, that make it work really well, like local Bitcoins, which we, we can get to in a bit. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what, what you can have as a Venezuelan who only has an account in Venezuela is a second jurisdiction that happens to connect to every other jurisdiction in the world. So you have an account in a Venezuelan bank, but you also have an account in local Bitcoins. And that account allows you to trade with anyone in the world. The asset is not very appealing for most people because Bitcoin is very volatile, but it is an asset. Mm -hmm. And it is something that you can hold on to and actually trade for other cryptocurrencies that, you know, nowadays we have uh, the so-called stable coins, right? Like the, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the you know, some, some people are calling them crypto dollars now because the, the main use case for stable assets that like it's assets that peg to a, a certain currency or, or, or another asset is to pay it to the US dollar because it is the most desirable asset. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, th- this allows people to, to break out of their financial cage, if you will. If you're in Venezuela and you don't have you are, you are like subject to capital controls you you don't you can't actually move your money out because banks want wired abroad and you can't also get money in it doesn't really matter anymore if you know how to use bitcoin well if you if you know how to run an account on local bitcoins because bitcoin is global and th- there's a market for bitcoin in almost every country in the world and so this is what is, is so powerful about it it connects systems that are closed or that used to be closed and in a way that is digital that doesn't require you uh, doesn't require to have anything else than knowledge which turns out to be very important because the barrier is quite high in in the skill set that you need but um it's just that that knowledge and a computer or or a phone so this is game changer i think Absolutely. In fact, um, there was there's an anecdote that I wanted to read to you, Alejandro, that I included in a bit of research that I did in graduate school, specifically regarding local Bitcoins. I had noticed that it provides a very unique trading platform experience because it's not like this sort of trade floor that you see in more centralized exchanges. It seems like it has greater on-ramp access, which basically means that it facilitates greater accessibility for first-time Bitcoin users. And of course, that ability to circumvent encroaching regulations that are based inside of Venezuela, something that I'm sure you're familiar with and that I'll get into in a bit as well. Mm-hmm. Um, something that I had that I had read and you can tell me, I guess, if this is sort of the experience, uh, if this experience is indicative of Venezuelan users of local Bitcoins and Bitcoin in general. Um, there's a guy named Carlos Hernandez who wrote an article for the New York Times, and he describes the experience of converting Bitcoin in, uh, in Bolivars. And he says, I go through the listings on localbitcoins.com, the exchange that most Venezuelans seem to use, looking for offers to buy my Bitcoins from people who use the same bank I do. That way, the wire transfer can go through immediately. Once I accept the offer, the Bitcoins get deducted from my wallet and are held in escrow by the site. I send my banking information to the buyer and I wait. After the buyer sends me the Bolivars via wire transfer, I release the Bitcoins from escrow and then they are transferred to the buyer's Bitcoin wallet. We each give each other a positive score and that's it. The whole process takes about 10 and a half minutes. Does that sound about right? Oh, absolutely. We actually hired Carlos for an assignment in Venezuela with the first open money initiative. Oh, research. yeah. <laughs> there we go figure. That's awesome. 
Yes, uh, Carlos is a good friend, um, and he's a good writer too. Like that that bit you just shared is um, very well explained. Even though it's a very complex process, I think he he breaks it down for the non financially savvy person quite well, mm-hmm. and that's exactly how, how it works. It it, it works. Um, I mean, this, this is not to say that anyone could do it or anyone could could grasp it, but he's a young guy. He's like he was into technology, and he figured it out. Like him, many, many people, especially younger people, people with like curiosity around computers have figured it out. And um, we paid them, we, we paid Carlos in Bitcoin. And, and this is something that like he is, is, is telling generally, I think he's, he's a hustler and he's freelanced for a bunch of companies uh, and institutions. And um, I, I think that the main way that, that he likes getting paid is, is, is this asset because it is just very easy to, to exchange back into, into Bolivars. Whereas... You know, there are other platforms that, like PayPal, like they, they may shut down your account at any moment. Mm-hmm. There's Payoneer that charges exorbitant fees and also like doesn't like Venezuelans all too much. And, um, you know, not, now with the issue of sanctions, like there's a lot of overcompliance and then people saying and repeating that Venezuela is a sanctioned country, which is it is not. Uh, and so Carlos doesn't have to deal with any of that. They, they, he just gets paid in Bitcoin. And the only issue that he might have is the volatility. But if I remember correctly, we paid Carlos using a wallet called Abra. Uh, Abra is the, is the name, Abra.com is the name of the company. It's a US company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, at the time in 2018, uh, this, so this was before like our formal like field research. This is like when we were at the, at the Zcash company and then gradually like instituted uh, OMI as a, as a company or, or as, a, as a non-profit initiative. We paid Carlos uh, using this uh, wallet called Abra, uh, or like this, it, it's a product of this company called Abra. Um, and at the time, they had a hedging system um, that was kind of complicated to understand. But for the user, uh, you didn't really have to understand much about it. It just had a, like a like a pocket in in the app, or like a like a function where you could have US dollars or like you, you could see the, the US flag and the dollar sign and you could have a, a balance there uh, in, in that uh, denominated in dollars. Mm-hmm. And then you could transfer that out to other people uh, like we, we just to, to pay him. We loaded some from you know, our US banks to the, this wallet. Uh, and then you, we could transfer that money to Carlos's wallet. And then he could cash it out. But in the end, like the, all, of, all of those steps, he was actually transacting in Bitcoin. We were transacting in Bitcoin. It was just that Abra had a hedging system so that all of the assets held within the Abra system. It was technically Bitcoin on, on the back end, but they were betting against the price of Bitcoin rising on the other side. Mm. So if you have some Bitcoin and you also have a bet that the price of Bitcoin is going to go down, which is a derivative or, or a future, um, then you essentially have an asset that can be pegged. It, it's like a like a peg to the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. So we we solved kind of the problem of uh, paying Carlos uh, in a way that he could leave some of the money there without worrying about it going up or down. Uh, and then when he wanted to cash out, he just had to send some of that money out of the Abra wallet and into local bitcoins, and it would turn into. Like it, it was Bitcoin, right? Like it, it would, but it was Bitcoin, like already out of the Abra system, so it could be traded 
on local bitcoins for other for other assets. In Carlos's case, he wanted to trade for Bolivar so he could buy groceries and pay for things and so on. Mm -hmm. So that yeah, I, I it's funny that I didn't remember all of that. Just like remembered it now, but um, it's it, we've we've come a long way. And Abra, I think, had it right that the use for Bitcoin, um, I think, is to to form like a layer, a very very resilient layer of financial infrastructure that you can combine with trusted institutions. Abra is a trusted third party, which crypto people love to, love to talk about, like oh, don't trust anyone, just like keep your own money and so on. And that is a, a side of the spectrum. But if you have a, an institution that you can trust to keep the value of your money stable, for example, because that, that is the, the role that Arbor performed in this case, um, then you can have an asset that um, is actually identical uh, in many ways to the US dollar. It's a di in, in digital form and that you can immediately cash out into Bolivars or, or other currencies if you, if you use local Bitcoins in other currencies. So um, this all ties back into what we're doing at Value now, actually, that now that I think about it, we are using Bitcoin as uh, like in, in the very similar fashion to Abra, uh, but our users don't necessarily know that we are doing so because they don't really care. What people want is access to a dollar account. Venezuelans don't have access to dollar accounts mm -hmm. because in Venezuela, the dollar is still stigmatized from the official side, from the government. Uh, banks are not allowed to have like mass market dollar accounts for the people or if they are allowed they at least they, they haven't started opening them and so what remains is um people having to use foreign companies and and, and like foreign assets uh that that need to be held uh so for example they they we, we talk about the, the use of us dollars in cash some people or many people in venezuela have us dollars in cash but then what if you want to have some of that money in digital form so that it's harder to steal so that you know you can build up savings so that you know you you have the equivalent of an account mm -hmm. and it turns out you can do that now you could do that back in the day with um abra uh, but abra wasn't specifically tailored for venezuelan users so carlos you, you still needed the sophisticated bit of trading it directly into local bitcoins you know like ha having to take out the money in bitcoin form knowing what bitcoin is knowing that bitcoin is volatile and then converting it into Bolivars on your own by picking a trader, trusting the trader, doing all that. Uh, what we're doing at Value Now abstracts all of that away by, you know, you, you, we, we do that back office process for you. We just like give you a button and you could cash out the dollars into Bolivars um, without you necessarily knowing how it happened or why it happened. And uh, that's something that people want. Mm -hmm. And we, we, uh, we are finding out at the moment. So it's, it's exciting to see just like things that we have kind of been vaguely aware of like or, or like directions that other companies have been uh, pushing in. Uh, these have like very different receptions in different markets. And I, I, Abra has pivoted now. They, they're focusing more on a US uh, investor and like they, they offer a lot of other cryptocurrencies and, and they, they make money off of the fees that they charge for like swapping one cryptocurrency for another. And so that, that's all fine, but it just shifted. Like the, the, the use case that they used to provide for no longer exists in the same way. And um, it would be very difficult for Abra to try to market their product so that it could be used by, for Venezuelans without doing the, the additional tweaks uh, and, the, and the specific focus that a company like Value has uh, for, for the Venezuelan market. So it matters a lot. Like the, the product that you build, like how it works, uh, what the interface looks like and what affordances the product has, uh, then it, like, it, it turns out to matter quite a lot.
That's really, really exciting, Alejandro. Um, I definitely got to look more into this value project because the evolution of this crypto space does mean that they're going to be sort of uh, metaphorical layers, we can say, building on some of the original proposals all the way dating back to that 2008 paper, that white paper from Satoshi Nakamoto that had this dream of creating something that would be an alternative to this sort of dystopian currency that is the Bolivar, something that would be immune to the government's control and to other sorts of entities, something that would be... Um, the people's money. Exactly. And something that, like, that you mentioned, something that can be um, only applied with or the changes can be applied only with the user's consensus and something that's borderless. Now, on that note, I wanted to ask Alejandro um, about the challenges of using that sort of technology right now in a country like Venezuela. Going back to something you had mentioned earlier, the Petro. Mm -hmm. Now, for my listeners, uh, the Petro, and correct me if I'm wrong here, was something that was debuted in February of 2018. And it's kind of like a stable coin. Because it's a cryptocurrency whose value, unlike Bitcoin, like you say, is latched onto another unit of value, like a commodity. It could be a fiat currency like, like the US dollar. But in the case of the Petro, its value was originally designed to be pegged to the price of a barrel of Venezuelan crude oil before they reconfigured it, before they realized, oh my gosh, maybe this isn't such a good idea because our oil <laughs> industry is collapsing. They yeah. decided to reconfigure it to a value orientation of about half of it backed by oil, 20% backed by gold, 20% by iron, and 10% by <laughs> diamonds. Now, what can you say apart from the initial red flags, Alejandro, were wrong with the government imposing what I guess you can consider like a central bank digital currency? Yes, I I am totally aligned with that like thinking. I think that Petro should be recognized as a project that tried to bring a CBDC into reality and it failed. And I think the main thing that we we can take away from this is that the only thing that matters for for the backing of something, uh, like if, if you're going to back a digital asset with physical assets, you need to trust. That's the only element that counts with the backing, right? Even with the gold standard, when, they, when US dollars were backed by gold, they were not really backed by gold. They were backed by the trust that you could go to somewhere. Uh, I, I don't exactly know how the process worked, but you, during that time, you could go somewhere uh, to a government office or to like, you know, the Fed's offices or whatever, and you could give them like let's say a hundred dollar bill and you would get a certain amount of gold that was backing it that promise is what really counts and so when people said that the petro was backed by this or by that what they were really saying was that the petro was backed by maduro's promises to give you a barrel of oil or what like whatever uh <laughs> if you gave them a petro right and so okay good you are trusting a government with a terrible track record um good for you man like i mean all, all the power to you like you you are you if, if you want to trust that that um institution then it's on you and, and yeah. when, when that breaks down you will be the one who is uh like left in the dark and you know it's it's just uh mm -hmm. yeah yeah you're you're saying it perfectly um hmm. 
Trust is absolutely essential. And you and I know, and we've talked about this in the podcast, I think by now the listeners understand that this is probably, first of all, this is probably the world's greatest kleptocracy. So there's no reason whatsoever to attribute any semblance of trust to these people at all. And that's why in lieu of those sorts of um, those sorts of currencies being used as alternatives to the Bolivar, which I mean, it, it's kind of laughable that they're having to create solutions for mistakes that they themselves created. Um, you do have uh, initiatives like yours, and you have initiatives like AirTM, for example, that try and counteract this uh, this regime's commitment to economic oppression. Now, right. AirTM is um, it's an exchange service that uh, I think it facilitates both bank and peer-to-peer transfers to and from any part of the world. And they've uh, they've been in Venezuela for a while. I, I, I believe they were banned from operating in Venezuela as part of a larger government crackdown a couple of years ago, something mm-hmm. called Operation Paper Hands, where at one point they had about 300,000 users in Venezuela. And they're back in the news because they were appointed to redistribute some $18 million that were seized by U.S. authorities, all corrupt money, of course, money that was laundered by the Maduro regime, to send to healthcare workers. And the regime, doing what it does best, shut down access to AirTM. And the reason I ask you this, uh, Alejandro, is because I noticed that you had... um, you had said that RTM and uh, the interim president Waido are making a huge bet in regular people being able to download and operate these sort of virtual private network services on basic smartphones to be able to use RTM and to get access to those dollars. So I'm wondering if you could explain to the listeners where that lapse in access might come from. Right. So I first of all, I want to say that I applaud RTM's efforts to continue to try to provide service to Venezuelans who need it more, more than anyone. And uh, it's, um, it's one of the few companies that actually is providing a good service or you know, some, some semblance of a good service uh, to, to Venezuelans um, in, the, in the time of crisis. And I, I know they work really hard. I know Ruben, I've met him a few times. He's a great guy. And I think that, that to, be, to be said first. Second, I think it's incredibly evil. I think it's almost a definition of evil to try to block payments, no matter where the money may come from, try to block payments to medical workers in the middle of a pandemic. Just like, I think that the the story should revolve more around that than about, you know, whether RTM is easy or hard to use and what they could have been doing better because we all could do things better. Mm -hmm. Not not, like none of us are perfect and we are tackling a very, very difficult problem. So again, I want to, like, thank the RTM team and and uh, applaud them for their efforts. Um, and also, like, say again that this story is about a government that is that goes to the lengths of banning paying people that are defending the life of citizens. Yeah. In a time where we have not only not not a human enemy but a virus. That is, you know, it should be our collective enemy as, as a species. And it's just like the, the, the level of evil of evil is just like out, out, of, out of this world. Mm-hmm. And so with that said, my, in my opinion that I like, still hold is that it's a very, very risky bet to try to get people that are living in very poor conditions 
and that people who have very little mental bandwidth and very little online bandwidth mm-hmm. um, to have the tools, the resources, the connections, everything that is required, like jumping through all these hoops and actually using a service like RTM. So first, it's very difficult. Like most people don't know that they have a browser on their phones. Most people's worlds, technolo- technological worlds, are the Google Play Store and the App Store, the Apple App Store. Well, the people we're talking about mostly have Google uh, Androids, uh, so so it's it's Google Play Store. Mm-hmm. Just to start with, um, people also don't really trust financial apps, or like they're not likely to trust them if if they're like just living on a website rather than something that feels a little more tangible, like an app. So there's there's a lot of things that I think could have been kind of designed in a different way um, if you are really a, a customer-centric or, or like a user-driven company. Uh, you, you have to think about who your users are, what capacities they have. Like these people in, in Venezuela, most, most of these people, even medical workers that might have a better center of living than most Venezuelans who are uh, living in, in poverty, many people don't have computers. The RTM website does not really load that well on, on mobile phones. Like it's, it's not extremely usable like you you can try it yourself and you can you can tell me if you defer Mm -hmm. but um i i think that there's a lot that could have been planned ahead and like rtm having the time uh that they've they've been on the market i would have hoped that they 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 could have focused a little bit more on this problem i know that they have a big user base they have users in other countries i understand like this may not be their highest priority but this is exactly why I think we need an ecosystem uh, and we need some competition. Uh, and this is what we, want, what we wanted to foster with the Open Money Initiative because when you understand the needs of people, like truly, truly understand, then you can do something, you can do things a lot differently. Like if, you, if you have a mobile app, you can defend against the kind of block that AirTM was also uh, experiencing or is, is experiencing at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, with a website, you can't. Uh, a website is blocked in five seconds by the Maduro administration it's, it's just very very easy mm-hmm. uh, an app if you have a native app it's it's not that easy like oh, it's a it's a it's a game of cat and mouse i'm not saying it's like perfect uh and china certainly blocks apps and and like a lot of things they have a great firewall but if you are getting on that race you can force venezuela to have to build a firewall and it, it'll gain you time uh you, you'll just like have to compete with them on a technical basis and if you compete with the maduro administration on a technical basis you can win Mm-hmm. because they are remarkably inept at many, many things. They are very good at keeping like a hold on power. They're very good at administering violence and, and doing a lot of dark stuff, but they are not especially good at digital technology. And that is a field where you can do so much better. And as a company that is well capitalized, that has U.S. investors, that has uh, you know, access to a very like, broad network of people, my, my, my message was in that, uh, like in that direction of saying, oh, gee, I, I wish that this like things had gone differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, like I, I want to say that I support these efforts. I also remark Tunnel Bears uh, like involvement in the whole thing. Like they, they Tunnel Bears are actually a very easy to use VPN. Uh, so if you if you get the message across, if Guaido and like also the, I think the, the communications of President Guaido have been very very effective like uh, or I, I don't know how effective they've been actually because we, we don't have those numbers but to me they resonate and i think they could be successful in like 
explaining to people how they can download a VPN and how they can do this. So, so the, the, the educational approach is a huge bet. Yeah. Um, I, I am hoping that it will not fail uh, because I, I have concerns like being in this space. I have concerns that many people will be taken advantage of because they can't use the app. They can't use the web app. And, you know, there are people that are more tech savvy that are going to charge these medical workers to access their funds, which would be terrible. Like if the whole game is about autonomy, you are fostering a system by having a product that is not that easy to use. You're fostering a system that um, it, it would encourage things like fraud and things like take advantage of, of the situation, which will happen anyways, no matter how good you have it, uh, how good your system is. But you can do better. And like you have a very, very, it's a very tall order. And I think that we as an ecosystem have to do better and we have to push each other. Uh, I mean, value is competing with RTM in some ways. And, and um, we should, I think from that competition and from competition with other uh, potential players, we will all come out stronger and we, because we all have the same goal of like empowering mm-hmm. Venezuelans in this case to, to have financial autonomy, to, to be able to use these technologies, to have a check on the power of the state and especially the monetary power of a state. Mm-hmm. 100%. I'm right there with you. I, I commend AirTM, applaud their efforts and equally those of TunnelBear. TunnelBear is a VPN that is offering Venezuelans 10 gigabytes of TunnelBear usage for a, a whole month. And that they even put it in their tweet, healthcare workers deserve the benefits of an open and uncensored internet. And as do Venezuelans at large, the whole world at large. There's no reason why in 2020, an authoritarian regime like that of the Maduro regime should be able to not only pull this off, but to be able to essentially get away with murder. I think it's it's frankly disgusting, as you put it. And the dependency of Venezuelans on the state in spite of having the slowest internet in the entire hemisphere. If you look at Alexa.com, they show you the top sites of usage by country. Uh, the Patria platform where people get their remittances, where people look at their bank statements, where they look at their their handouts is only beneath Google and YouTube. So it gives you an idea of just how subservient society has become. So I'm hoping mm. that uh, once this Maduro regime falls, that we will have at least gotten over some hurdle of adoption with AirTM and with these efforts by this, uh, this interim government. So my last question here for you, Alejandro, is... Looking ahead, what do you think is the future of cryptocurrency and blockchain in Venezuela? Like, what do you think are the initial steps that should be taken to promote this sort of renewed crypto ecosystem that really has a place in Venezuela, hopefully? Yeah, that's a great question. Our bet is that cryptocurrency will enable everyday people, regular people, to hold and to use dollar accounts digital dollar account. So the crypto dollar is the story of this year, next year, I think for the for the next few years, we're going to have that people want to have an asset that mimics the price of something that they know very well, and that they've trusted for decades. And if you allow people to have access to that one asset, the other parts of the ecosystem like Bitcoin, like Ethereum, like they, they have their own merits, and they have traders behind them, they have a, an ecosystem of technologies that are improving them and so on. These things are going to keep being more and more useful. Like, uh, like people are going to keep using products that are specialized for traders like local Bitcoins. And, and like, you know, now we have Binance B2P and we have uh, Paxful and there, there's competitors to local Bitcoins and there, there will be more. And I think that for the general population, what this is going to be huge about is, is about the use of an asset that is 
virtually indistinguishable from your bank's Bank of America Zelle dollar account that people actually have access to. Because how many people in Venezuela would like to use Zelle right now? Probably almost everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, but how many people have access to Zelle right now? Maybe tens of thousands of people, and maybe that's being generous. Um, that is something that can change because holding assets, um, you can do some financial engineering on, on, in the back uh, if you are a specialized company in, in financial risk and, and you can measure the risk of doing of holding assets on people's behalf or, or, and taking bets, like I mentioned, with the Arbra hedging system and so on. Or if you are a protocol that wants to design, like there's a, there's a protocol called, called uh, MakerDAO. It's a, it's, a, it's a stable coin that is designed like algorithmically to remain uh, similar to the price of the US dollar that I think is very interesting. Some people uh, like object to it. Some people say that it's uh, it's going to fall like all pegs break and this is not different. But you know, th these experiments are useful and they are exciting for us who are building the technology and are, are enthusiasts. But I think that in the end, there will be traders, there will be, there will be tech people, and then there will be the masses and like the, the people who need just I just need a dollar account, man. Like, I just need to be able to move money in a way that is predictable, that is stable, that I can save in. And so on. So just give me a dollar account. And I'll be happy. Yeah. And I think that's that's what's going to be very, very empowering. And that's what we are excited about at Value. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Until until then, it's pretty clear that Venezuela's Bolivar, its currency, doesn't pass by any means the monetary litmus test. It no longer serves, like we said, a store of value, medium of exchange, unit of account. And I think... To some degree, those features can be compensated by the adoption of cryptocurrency the day after tomorrow, as we as we like to say, after Maduro is gone. And these currencies, like we say, they transcend borders and they may be the first step in reintroducing a renewed Venezuela to the world. So again, I applaud you and your efforts. I think it's so, so awesome. And this is something that we're going to be talking about a lot more in, in this podcast, listeners. So in the meantime, if listeners want to learn more about you and what you're doing with your startup and with the Open Money Initiative, where can our listeners find you? I'm on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at, at A-L-E-G-W. Um, you could also follow Value at ValueCO, so V-A-L-I-U-C-O. And um, yeah, I, I think that's, that's the best way to reach, reach me, actually. Um, I have found very good friends on Twitter. I, I like a healthy debate. I know Twitter has some downsides and I'm trying to not get too distracted by it. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it, it's just the best place for dialogue. And it's actually where, where we found each other. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. Um, I, I agree with Alejandro entirely. If you want to follow him, the Open Money Initiative and their efforts to support what I would call digital democratization, I will provide links to his Twitter as well as the pages of the Open Money Initiative so that you can learn more about um, all the awesome stuff that they're doing. Alejandro, this was an awesome conversation. I learned a lot through this. So thank you again so much for your time. Thank you, Rafael. I'm glad. I'm glad uh, I was able to help out. And uh, yeah, just hit me up. Thanks again for tuning into the State of Venezuela podcast. I hope you enjoyed hearing the story of our country as much as I enjoyed sharing it. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming platform you use. I'd also be grateful if you could leave a review and share it with anyone who might be interested in learning more about Venezuela as well. Finally, if you have any thoughts on today's episode or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, drop a comment or send me an email at stateofvenezuela at gmail.com. Thanks again. See you all in the next one.